You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I hate to break up the conversation, but I'm going to invite you back to your seats now. As you head back, if you want to grab a Bible and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a stack of hardback black Bibles over by the entrance there. We'd love for you to grab one of those and have God's Word in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible and you would like one, this is our gift to you. So feel free to take that with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. And so feel free to grab that again, page 966 on the hardback black Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we circled March 5th on the calendar for launch day, I started to ask myself, what text will we preach on that day? I wanted something that communicates who we are as a church, something that is foundational to what we believe and how we function together. And so today's sermon is just simply called Good News. See, news is different than advice. It's different than rules. News is an announcement of something that has already happened. So often people come to church looking for advice, or they come to church expecting to hear rules. But here at River City Church, more than rules or advice, what we want to give you is good news. And this news is also known sometimes by the word gospel. This good news, it has enough depth, it has enough gravitas to have all of our faith orbit around it with the good news at the center. And in this way, faith is really quite simple. Today, we want to talk about this simple gospel. And on the other hand, faith can feel complex at times, but it makes it so much easier. It makes so much more sense when it's grounded upon this good news. So our passage today is really one of my favorite in all of the Bible because it is beautifully composed and also because in it we see why we can have hope in the world. It tells us something that is foundational to the good news that we believe. It tells us that Jesus died in our place. And so you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's word. And then uh, at the end, after I finish reading, I'm going to say uh, just this simple phrase, this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to say in response, thanks be to God, as an expression of our gratitude to God's word. Now we're going to focus on verse 21, but I'm going to read all of 18 through 21 just to give us a little bit more context for what we're looking at today. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 is where I'll read. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here we come to verse 21. And here Paul's going to tell us why we can be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat as I pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so right now we ask for your help. Help us by the power of your spirit. Open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
In the summer of 1998, the movie Armageddon hit theaters, and it became the highest-grossing film of that year. And I'm realizing, as I've asked other people, I think people only saw it for like a three-year window. Like, no one has seen this movie outside of like this three-year window. But it was this blockbuster hit. It's a film about these oil drillers who partner up with NASA to drill a hole in this like Texas-sized asteroid as it's hurtling toward Earth. So they can put this bomb inside and blow it up before it destroys all of humanity, right? Bruce Willis, Liv Tyler, Ben Affleck, they all star. Aerosmith's song, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, was in this movie, and it was the most listened to song from a movie that year. As I've been preparing for the sermon, it's been in my head all week, so I feel like I need to like purge it from my mind now. One of the reasons that I loved this film so much is because at the end of the film, and I am going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, I'm not even, I don't feel bad, right? You've had 25 years to watch it. If you haven't seen it yet, <laughs> at the end of the film, the detonation mechanism isn't working. And so Harry Stamper, the head of this oil drilling unit played by Bruce Willis, he goes outside to manually detonate the bomb while the rest of the crew takes off to safety. There are all these emotional moments between Harry and his daughter and Harry and his daughter's fiance. And the part that has always stuck with me, and it's like vivid in my mind 25 years later, is the scene when Harry sacrifices himself instead of letting his son-in-law do it. He substitutes himself and he dies so that humanity can live. As people, we love stories like this, stories of sacrifice, stories of substitute, where one person substitutes themselves for the benefit of others. And it shows up everywhere in stories and films, right? At the end of the movie franchise, The Matrix, you know, the original trilogy when they should have ended the series before the reboot. <laughs> Books like The Tale of Two Cities or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Harry Potter. It's everywhere. In fact, I even saw, like, I, I got, started getting tears in my eyes at the end of Cars 3 because <laughs> Lightning McQueen... He puts his future career on the line to let his trainer, Cruz Ramirez, go out and finish the race. He substitutes his future for hers. And I'm standing there behind my kids as they're watching this movie. I'm getting all choked up. We love stories of substitution and sacrifice. Now, you might even get annoyed with them sometimes because they're so common. But there's a reason we love them. There's a reason they warm our heart because they are all based on the true story of the world, the unfolding drama of humanity that God wrote himself into the story to be our substitute. Every story is pointing to the great story to which our hearts are drawn. And what we'll find in our text today, the primary message of the sermon, primary message of the text is that Jesus took our record to the cross so that we can take his record into eternity. He took our record to the cross so we can take his record into eternity. And here's the outline for us, three points, and we're just going to work our way through the text. He did what we could not he became what he was not, so we could become what we are not. So he did what we could not. For this first point, we're really just going to focus on the key phrase in the middle of this text, who knew no sin. In this way, Jesus did what we could not do. He was without sin, and as a result, he could become the only one capable of dying in our place. And in order to understand this passage, we need to define sin together. First, we'll do it in the language of the Bible. It, the words that are used for sin in the scriptures often mean something like missing the mark, like when someone is shooting an arrow at a target and they miss. In this way, sin is when people miss the mark of God's design for them. He created us in a certain way. He gave us certain commands. And when we deviate from them, when we miss the mark of God's holiness, then that is what the Bible calls sin. This is a very linguistic definition of sin. 
And with that in mind, we might even say then that Jesus never missed the mark in his conduct. But the Bible also presents another layer deeper as we think about defining sin. Beneath every time we miss the mark, there is a worship issue at hand. For example, when God gave us the Ten Commandments, have you ever noticed that the first two of the commandments are about worship? They're about our worship of God. The last eight commandments are all about our obedience. Many church leaders throughout history have pointed this out and have argued that if we violate one of the last eight commandments, then we have definitely violated one of the first two as well. If, for example, I covet something that is my neighbor's, it is because I have come to worship myself and the item that I desire, believing that the item will bring me happiness and fulfillment rather than God. At its core, all sin is a worship problem because we're not just rejecting a command of God. We are choosing to make something other than God the ultimate thing in our life. Therefore, we can define sin as, and here's the definition, you'll see it on the screen, false worship leading to failed obedience. And what the Bible says is that everyone in the history of the world has sinned in this way. We have all worshipped idols. We have all missed the mark in our conduct. And in contrast to us, what our passage is saying is that Jesus was without sin. He did what we could not The good news of the gospel assumes some things that might be hard for our modern minds. It assumes that we have all sinned, and it also assumes that Jesus did not. And I think that for many people, they will have a harder time admitting that they have sinned than that Jesus did not, because we do not like to acknowledge our own We struggle to believe that there is a moral law against which we should be judged. I recently heard Timothy Keller, a pastor and author in New York, describe some cultural assumptions we used to have in Western society. They were kind of roadmaps for us, markers for us. Our culture used to assume a handful of things, like that there's a moral law with moral absolutes, and that as people, we are in need of forgiveness because we have failed in our attempt to live by those moral laws, that there is life after death, and that there is a personal God. And evangelism was usually just connecting those dots for people. That was my experience. Someone helped me to connect the dots, and I trusted in Jesus. The challenge today, though, is that dots, those dots are not there for people. And our passage assumes many of those things, because that's what the Bible teaches about the world. So in order to talk about sin and understand our passage, we need to understand this idea of a moral law, moral absolutes, and our inability to keep them. But what if those dots aren't there? What if they are not there even for some of you in the room? If you do not think that you have offended a holy God, if you do not think that your life is governed by a moral law outside of yourself, then this passage is going to be very difficult for you. It it will not be good news. But if you want to understand this passage, if you want want to understand what the author meant for us to understand in this passage, we need to understand that the Bible believes these things are true. Paul, who wrote this, believed that these things were true. One of the most significant challenges for us today is that we do not want to submit to a moral law outside of ourselves. With what some have called the rise of the modern self, we want to give ultimate authority to ourselves to govern what is right and what is good. And that is where so often we come into conflict with this passage, because if I am the ultimate authority, then why should I care if God has said that I'm guilty of idolatry and sin and sent Jesus to die in my place? But the the reality of the idea of a completely autonomous self, it is all really just an illusion. It is not actually possible. 
And so Keller offers this thought experiment to help make this point more clear. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior from 800 AD who, who has two strong inner impulses. One of them is aggression. And when someone offends him, he feels a strong desire to retaliate, to inflict pain and even death. And as a result, he's a great warrior and he's helped win many battles for his people. He says to himself, that is me. That's who I am. I will express that part of me. The other inner impulse that this man has is a same-sex attraction. But given his context and his culture and his time, that wouldn't be acceptable. And so he looks at that feeling and he says, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now fast forward to today. Imagine a young man walking the streets of Minneapolis with the same two inner impulses. He will say to himself, he will look at his aggression and he will say, that's not who I am. I will control and I will suppress that. And he'll go to counseling and anger management to help him do that. Meanwhile, he'll look at his sexual desire and he will say, that is me. That is who I am. I will express that part of me. Now, this thought experiment shows several different things. I'm not trying to advocate for one or the other. Mostly what I want us to see is that today it is an illusion to think that our identity is simply an expression of what I think and feel. Because, in fact, we make decisions about our identity all the time based on all sorts of influences. For the average high school student, friends and media will have a massive influence. Our workplace, our family, our culture, they will all have influences. See, we are all governed by a law outside of ourselves. The question we must ask is, where does that moral law come from? And the assumption of our passage is that the moral law that ultimately governs us is from God, as delivered through the Bible, and that there is one man who never failed to keep it. Meanwhile, all the rest of us have missed the mark and worshipped idols. And you might be thinking at this point, Jeremy, I thought you said that you were going to give us good news today. Right? This doesn't sound like good news, and it isn't, unless there's an answer for it. So let's go to the point two. He became what he was not. Here we're looking at the first part of this passage. For our sake, he made him to be sin. The passage tells us that the one who knew no sin, Jesus, becomes sin. And here's why that matters. Because God is a just God and sin demands a consequence. Now, we don't always like to say that, but we get it. Deep inside of us, God has placed a sense of justice and morality. We believe that there is right and wrong in the world. And we know that there is evil in the world. And we want something done about it. See, we want something done about evil. We, we want God to punish evil. We want men like Hitler to be punished. And we want people running slave trafficking rings to be punished. When you get to the end of Lord of the Rings, you don't want Sauron to win, right? You want him to lose. And you want the ring destroyed and his oppressive regime to end. When you get to the end of Harry Potter, you want Voldemort to lose. In the Old Testament, when, when God's people are escaping Egypt... You want the Red Sea to fall back in on Pharaoh and his armies as they pursue Israel. We do not want to worship a God who is incapable or unwilling to do something about the evil in the world. We don't want Pharaoh to get what he wants. We don't want him to get through and massacre God's people. We don't wish that Hitler had won. We don't cheer for evil. We want it destroyed. And now we come to a problem. Because we want sin to be dealt with. But at some point, the reality comes home to our heart that we are not innocent either. We have done evil in the world. Now, we may not be like Hitler, but we have hated our brother nonetheless. We have lived with self-righteousness in our heart. We have looked at others with contempt. We have worshiped idols. We are guilty. Long ago, God made a plan to deal with this 
guilt and sin, and it was through sacrifice, and it was through substitution. At first, once a year, on what was called the Day of Atonement, Israel would sacrifice an unblemished lamb for their sin. And the reason God demanded a lamb was because its blood represented life. And in exchange for the life of Israel, God received the sacrifice of this unblemished lamb in exchange for their sin. And because God demanded a perfect and unblemished sacrifice, that's what he sent for us in Jesus, a perfect and unblemished sacrifice, which is why the Bible says in 1 Peter that we were ransomed from our sin through the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Even though we have failed to worship God rightly, we have failed to follow God's commands, and we have offered imperfect sacrifices, God is not like us. He offered a perfect sacrifice for us in Jesus, and Jesus became sin for us. God sent his son into the world, and then he looked upon him as a sinner, saying of Jesus, you are now the denier Peter and the persecutor Paul. You are the adulterer down the road, and you are the deceiver who accuses. You are the one who ate from the tree and the one whose bitterness is like poison. Jesus became sin and received a sinner's consequence. Martin Luther once wrote about Jesus' death on the cross, that Jesus became the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or could be in all the world. God did not see him as an innocent person and without sins, but a sinner. The one who was innocent of sin became sin, so we who are guilty can be made innocent. Because in dying for us, the perfect justice of God is satisfied because sin and evil are dealt with in the person of Jesus. Jesus died in our place. The Innocence Project has become known for its work of trying to free people who are wrongly sentenced, especially those on death row. And as much as we want evil to be punished, we also desperately do not want innocent people to be wrongly executed. And now imagine with me that you're able to know all the details of a particular legal case. And you know that the one who was declared guilty, who now sits on death row awaiting their execution, is in fact innocent. Meanwhile, the person who is actually guilty, who claims to be a friend of the condemned, is walking free. If you could know all the facts and know the truth of the situation with certainty, you would be angry with the guilty man who walks free and feel incredible compassion toward the innocent man who awaits his execution. Such a significant miscarriage of justice, it would boil our blood and it would make us furious, rightly so. And now stop and consider the situation the passage is describing to us. The innocent man has been condemned. Meanwhile, the guilty has been set free. The one who knew no sin, who lived in perfect harmony with God, who did not miss the mark in his conduct, who lived in perfect obedience to God's commands, who was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, that man died. Meanwhile, the ones who claimed to be friends abandoned him. The, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was charged with upholding justice, allowed a man he knew to be innocent get executed. But Jesus did not go to the cross unwillingly. He knew it was God's will that he become a sacrifice for all who would believe. In the courtroom of God, we were rightly accused and justly condemned, and Jesus steps forward to take our place by becoming sin for us. And our passage doesn't just end there. It's not just that he became sin for us, but our passage ends by saying that we become the righteousness of God in him. 
We come to point three, so we could become what we are not. In this way, the passage is not just about substitution, but about exchange. It is not just that about what Jesus took from us, but also what we get from Him. Earlier, I summarized the message of this passage as Jesus taking our record to the cross so that we can take His record into eternity. And that record is righteousness, pure, sinless. This week, I read a passage from A.W. Tozer that said the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. Now, I agree with Tozer in that quote, but I want us to ask it a little bit of a different way. I think it's also important to us to ask what we think comes into the mind of God when He thinks about us. Your answer to that question will say a lot about what you think about God. And so I'll ask you, what do you think comes into the mind of God when He thinks about you? The way you answer that question, it will change the way you live, it will change the way you die. When I was younger, I used to get this comment on my report card all the time that said, talks too much. Right? Who would think? A pastor who talks too much. I know of at least one person in the room whose report card would regularly include the phrase, has a problem with biting. I won't, I won't out the person. You, they can do it themselves if they want later. But what is recorded about us starts to impact the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we live. Someone very close to me consistently had the words, struggles to read on their report card. And do you know what they've believed about themselves for their entire life? That they're not good at reading. When it comes to our idolatry and our sin, it's as if we have report cards with all failing grades. And they say things like, struggles with anger and selfishness, lazy and undisciplined, judgmental toward others, addicted to pornography, self-righteous, and whatever is coming into your mind right now. And Jesus takes that report card and claims it as his own, and he takes that record to the cross. Meanwhile, he gives us a new report card with our name on the top, but inside of the card is Christ's record, all ace, 4.0, and it says things like child of God, pure and blameless, uncondemned. Now, this might just feel like a philosophical exercise or an imaginary problem, but let me assure you, it is not. It is not just imaginary. It makes me think of my mother. I've shared about her with some of you before, but indulge me to share again, because for her, this was not just imaginary. Her report card before God was a mess, a legitimate mess. She and my dad had made some really bad decisions early in their relationship, and to cope with those decisions, she had started to drink and gamble. And 15 years later, when I was 12, my younger sister died of a firearm accident in our home, and my mom always thought that that was God punishing her for what she had done over a decade before. She did not believe that God wanted her, and she struggled immensely to believe that Christ's sacrifice was enough for her. When she thought about what came into her mind, or into God's mind, when he thought about her, all she could see was failure, addict, murderer, condemned. And that shaped the way she saw herself. It changed the way that she lived, and it changed the way that she died. In all of her pain, she turned to her addictions. She lived a tormented and tortured life, and she died of cancer at the age of 54. And I can still remember pleading with her Less than six months before she died, as I'm driving down I-94, about to turn on 280 North, desperately wanting her to believe that God could forgive her, 
that because of Christ's death on the cross, through faith in him, that he would take her sin, that he would give her his righteousness. If she trusted in Christ, she could know that her report card did not read failure, addict, murderer, condemned, but through Christ it could read adopted, pure, blameless. I do not know if she ever trusted in Jesus before she died. I can't plead with her anymore, but I can with you right now. When you think about what comes into, your, or into God's mind, when he thinks about you, it is entirely dependent upon how you understand this passage, and it will change the way that you live. It will change the way that you die, because the one who is truly blameless, truly righteous, truly beloved, he died as the one who is condemned so that we could receive his record for eternity. Stories of substitution and sacrifice, they're everywhere because they're all just copying the true story of the world, that God wrote himself into our story to be our savior and substitute. The good news of the gospel is one of sacrifice and substitution. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is the greatest news that you could ever know. And it is upon the bedrock of this news that we will seek to build this replanted church together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.